Good afternoon. My name is Michael Reisman, and I'm the Myers-McDougall Professor of International Law at the Yale Law School. I'm greatly honored to have the opportunity to deliver a lecture to the audiovisual library of the United Nations, which I think is a wonderful idea. I've chosen for my lecture to explore some of the difficulties of international law, for it is by far the most difficult subject in the trivium and quadrivium of the legal curriculum. Law is frequently conceived of as fixed and stable, and of course the principles of international law are assumed to be permanent. But law is actually a dynamic process, and its components are far less certain than in the popular view. As for international law, it is particularly volatile, presenting especially daunting intellectual and moral challenges to the lawyers who practice it. At any level of social organization, law is most comprehensively understood as the processes by which people who are politically relevant with respect to each other establish and maintain arrangements for securing order, allocating the opportunities and the benefits and burdens of life, and providing for modes of resolving differences, all in ways that serve what they believe to be their interests. These arrangements may not be explicit. Indeed, they may operate at levels of consciousness so deep that many of the persons involved are unaware of them, or are taught, or simply assume that they are part of the natural order of things. The arrangements necessarily include agreements about the performance of critical parts of decision making, in particular, about how those legal arrangements are to be amended and applied. We call those constitutive arrangements and agreements about the content and specific legal arrangements in all of the areas of concern to the politically relevant actors. Power, wealth, enlightenment, skill, well-being, affection, respect, and rectitude. Now, agreement, it should be said, is a term covering a spectrum of consensus rather than the result of happy and spontaneous or carefully negotiated consensus of all the persons to be affected by them, some arrangements may be based on offers that cannot be refused. Other arrangements may be the result of real agreements, but only between some persons who are then able to impose them on others who are handicapped by having less knowledge and information, influence, access, manipulative skill, organization, or the tools of violence and the skill and the appetite for using them. Mainstream contemporary legal theory emphasizes the state as the centerpiece of a legal system, and state and law as two parts of the same identity. In this view, law means only those written arrangements which have been prescribed and applied by specific organs of the state. In some territories, the most critical legal arrangements may in fact be made and applied by the apparatus of the state. As a matter of preference, moreover, one might well posit that arrangements made in highly organized and explicit rather than informal processes are better both in their content and the procedures by which they're made. But any attempt to identify, 
understand, predict, or influence these types of decisions in the myriad exchanges that take place continuously between groups and individuals about the planet will fail if the framework of inquiry is built upon a premise of state law identity. There is no extant global state, nor is there an incipient one. Pretending that the Security Council is the embryonic executive branch, or to use the Marxist expression, the executive committee of a world state, that the General Assembly is its embryonic legislature, and that the International Court is its embryonic Supreme Court, may serve some unifying mythic purposes, but it disserves inquiry if it directs attention away from the processes by which law is actually made and applied in international politics. To the extent that it does so, faulty theory undermines those trying to perform legal functions. In every type of interaction, arrangements at both the constitutive and specific levels are characterized by distinct modes of communication, the language or dialects of the law. Now, as a semantic matter, legal statements are expressed in the imperative or subjunctive mood. Do or refrain from doing something, or do something in a particular way and secure a certain benefit, or suffer a certain loss. But it's not their linguistic form that makes these statements law. Legal communications are distinguished from the daily bombardments of you shoulds and you oughts by the symbols of authority and commitments of control which attend them. Both serve to mark them as legal communications and render them effective. Symbols of authority are designed to indicate to their intended audiences that the arrangements which they attend are law and to enhance respect for and a predisposition to comply with them. Symbols of authority are also a factor in compliance. So for that matter is the content of the arrangement. The more the content is perceived as in an actor's interest, the more the actor will support the arrangement without symbolic authorization or external compulsion. What will constitute symbols of authority will vary with the culture of the audience. The symbols may import, for example, divine authorization, or approval, derivations from utterances attributed to a charismatic leader or a successor, or from a sacred text, or supposed emanations of the popular will. The effectiveness of symbols of authority in legal arrangements frequently depends upon the culture, class, and religious cohesiveness of the audience. If all of its members do not share in the same authority or belief system, the symbolic component for sustaining the arrangements will be less effective and may even be a negative factor among particular strata or groups. Consider an example. The use of the word crusade to characterize a legal arrangement may have a powerful authoritizing force for an audience of Catholics and some other Christian denominations, evoking at deep levels of consciousness images of heroism and self-sacrifice ad maiorum dei gloria, it will have exactly the opposite effect for an audience of Muslims. In parallel fashion, the ascription of the word jihad to a legal arrangement may evoke a powerful positive emotion for Muslims and exactly the converse effect for Christians. 
the selection or crafting of symbols of authority has obvious implications for those multi-ethnic conglomerations in which there are few or only incipient and weak trans-ethnic identifications. It is an especially daunting task in the extraordinarily diverse international community. One of the challenges of governance in such environments is the cultivation of common authority symbols. Now, legal arrangements must also include credible commitments to apply the resources necessary to make them effective. The expectation that there are meaningful commitments is an important factor in compliance. The less advantageous to politically relevant actors the content of an arrangement is, and the less compelling its symbolic component, the more the arrangement must depend upon the credible commitments of those who are effective actors to uphold them. Where formal and effective institutions endowed with sufficient resources and adequately skilled personnel are charged with implementing arrangements, those affected by the arrangements will expect, with a probability commensurate with their confidence in the institutions, that the arrangements will be sustained. Such an expectation may be self-fulfilling in that the very expectation of effectiveness is likely to lead to adjustments in behavior to conform to those arrangements. Where, however, there are no institutions which are able to sustain the arrangements, those arrangements will depend for their effectiveness on one of two factors, on the self-interest of those to whom the arrangements are addressed, leading to voluntary compliance, or on the resources of other participants and their interest and willingness to deploy them. Now, effective institutional arrangements are plainly to be preferred over ad hoc coalitions of the willing. The readiness and ability of other participants to continue to invest their own resources may decline. They may decline because of a change in interest, a willingness to see the arrangement which they had theretofore supported adjust, change, or terminate, or a diversion of resources to other interests which come to be deemed more important. So here we encounter one of the critical problems of contemporary international law. At the constitutive level, institutional arrangements have been established, but they have not been given sufficient resources and adequately skilled personnel to accomplish the tasks assigned to them. Nor is this the result of accident or oversight. Many actors in international law are ambivalent about establishing highly effective international institutions. Yet, paradoxically, reliance on other participants to make specific arrangements effective when the institutions which were created to do this cannot runs counter to a widely affirmed constitutive policy, prohibiting unilateral initiatives by confining the exclusive right of forceful implementation to the most inclusive institutions. When other participants with sufficient resources decide to apply them in a specific instance, their actions then may implement that arrangement, but at the cost of undermining the more general constitutive arrangement. Now, no legal arrangement is self-sustaining. At any level of social organization, 
people will defend constitutive or structural legal arrangements against those who would prefer to replace them with other arrangements as long as the existing arrangements are believed to serve their interests. People who do not believe or cease to believe that the conception and institutional expression of common interests satisfies their own interests will be disinclined to support those arrangements and indeed may actively agitate and struggle against them. Hence, the mobilization, as opposed to the coercion, of diverse actors in support of a legal arrangement requires crafting or adjusting that arrangement so that a sufficient number of the relevant actors see it as their common interest. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that meaningful common interest is the critical political component in the effectiveness of legal arrangements, and especially in international law. Attractive moral arguments may be marshaled in favor of arrangements that encompass the interests of all relevant actors. But designing arrangements in the common interest is ultimately an imperative of political efficiency rather than morality. This political imperative is sometimes forgotten by those who are the momentary beneficiaries of an indulgent and apparently stable legal system, whose arrangements generally work in their favor. Such beneficiaries are prone, as long as they benefit, to mythologize the arrangements of the law, ascribing to them a majestic and enduring and self-sustaining neutrality. In their view, obedience is simply universally owed to the law because it's the law without regard to its content and distribution of benefits. Expressions such as the pillars of the law, the grandeur of the law, the majesty of the law, and so on, which are endlessly repeated in post-prandial bar association speeches and international discussions of the rule of law, import an inherent permanence and self-enforcement to legal arrangements simply because they're legal arrangements. By contrast, those who view themselves as excluded from, insufficiently indulged, or victimized by legal arrangements tend to view the law, and often wittily to characterize it and its institutional practices as an artifact of alien power and oppression. Surely the locus classicus is Anatole France's mordant observation that the law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to beg in the streets, steal bread, or sleep under a bridge. Yet, as soon as those who had been excluded gain sufficient power to share in redefining what will henceforth constitute the common interest, they undergo conversion to the law and become apostles of its majesty, grandeur, and permanence, and of course the universal duty of obedience to it. The function of such rhetoric is to reinforce respect for and obedience to legal arrangements, whatever their content. For some audiences, and for some time, such rhetoric and the symbols which resonate to it may contribute to the fulfillment of this function. But it is the perception by actors that arrangements are also in their interest that accounts for their compliance and their willingness to support and to contribute resources for the implementation of legal arrangements. 
Participants who succeed in getting everything they want in a specific arrangement to the exclusion of their competitors thus win Pyrrhic victories because the arrangement generates opposition and is unstable and will always require excessive resources for enforcement. Historicist theories would have us believe that institutions and practices perpetuate themselves automatically from generation to generation. They don't. No matter how skillfully the rhetoric of legal grandeur is deployed, both the content and procedures of legal arrangements in complex societies, and the world community is the complex society, are inherently volatile, even when they seek to express and implement an interest common to all participants. By volatile or unstable, I do not refer to the contention of deconstructionists that language is inherently imprecise. That's a view which I do not share. I mean rather that the content of both constitutive and specific arrangements is constantly under political stress to change, and the changes in the context of the arrangements are registered in adjustments in the content and procedure of those arrangements. This volatility is owed to a number of factors. The first is pervasive class, religious, and cultural diversity. Now, if all politically relevant actors shamed the same shared the same perspectives, the same identifications, the same images of the past and the future, and the same demands, the common interest of all of these actors, once identified and expressed in a legal arrangement, would be universally shared, stable, and enduring. Even if some discord crept in, the fact that all the participants resonated to the same symbols of authority would act to support the arrangements. Even if actors' perspectives did not coincide, but they believed that their interests were served by a common constitutive arrangement, in accordance with which each and every actor agreed on and believed in his or her place in an interlocking set of subordinations and superordinations, the legal arrangements produced in this constitutive context would be stable. Such arrangements, which may have achieved their most refined philosophical endorsement in Confucianism, are commonly espoused in regimes that invoke a divinity as one of the bases of authority. And I would emphasize this is by no means an exclusively Asian value. In a 19th century version of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the catechist undertakes to, and I'm quoting, submit myself to all my governors, teachers, spiritual pastors, and masters, to order myself lowly and reverently to all my betters, and to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me." End quote. This is obviously a most beneficial pledge for those at or near the apex of the social pyramid. Other than in charismatic political systems, which can only last as long as the charismatic leader, congruence of perspectives and effective deference to a single symbol of authority is ephemeral. This is especially so in the global community. 
the international political system is comprised of peoples with radically different conceptions of past and future and of assumptions about human and divine agency. They belong to different religions, classes, and cultures, and are distributed in territorial communities at very different levels of development. Their communities, or the parts or strata of those communities which they inhabit, exhibit different levels of minimum order and different levels of expectation of violence. Nor are all of the relevant communities to which people owe loyalty territorial. Some are non-governmental, ranging from corporate entities devoted to the maximization of wealth, to religious entities, to private armies, and to transnational criminal organizations. All of these entities generate their own symbols of authority and indeed their own legal systems. Those symbols and legal systems need not recognize the superiority of another authority, even if their members take it into account as an occupational hazard. Many of these groups now operate effectively transnationally and can insist on participating in the definition of the common interest. There have always been some actors within the international system who aspire and actually seek to transform the world according to their own idiosyncratic vision, whether it be secular and materialistic, for example, a world of liberal democracies, or a world of capitalism, or a world of communism, or divine, for example, a world of a particular creed of Christianity, or of a particular creed of Islam. In contention, the pursuit of these diverse visions puts stress on existing legal arrangements, increasing the volatility of international law. Were any one of these visions to be realized, it would, at least for the short term, reduce the volatility of international law. But no single dogma of universal ambition has yet prevailed. Even the contemporary international human rights movement, which describes itself as universal, is not. To be sure, its, its code is universalizable in the sense of being capable of application to everyone without regard to race, religion, ethnicity, or gender. But it is not universally accepted. In some, in a world of diverse images of past and future, of radically different demands, of sharply demarked identities, and of jagged distributions of political power, it is difficult to agree upon or to establish and maintain stable arrangements. A second factor causing instability in all legal arrangements relates to law's dialectical character. Every specific legal arrangement is born of political bargains and compromises, and each arrangement, reflecting the prevailing allocation of power and calculus of fairness or justice, discriminates in varying degree, in favor of some and against others. So the moment a legal arrangement is struck, it generates opponents, demanding its adjustment, amendment, or replacement, whether by formal amendment within the system or by noncompliant behavior that tests and stresses the particular arrangements, if not the constitutional structure itself. This is the dynamic dialectic of law that gives it its vitality and its volatility, what Rudolf von Jering called its struggle. This dialectical dynamic means that at every moment, 
the arrangements that comprise the corpus of any body of law, and especially international law, include first, some inherited arrangements whose support is declining, while other inherited arrangements overcome or accommodate challenges. Second, new arrangements, which are displacing existing ones. And third, surviving arrangements, usually described as historical or past dependent, that continue thanks to a common interest or disinterest in them. The arrangements in this last group may seem natural and inevitable, but their duration too is uncertain. In this respect, Professor Fukuyama was profoundly wrong. As long as there are human beings, there will be neither an end to history nor an end to law's volatility. A related reason for the volatility of all law, but especially of international law, is to be found in the phenomenon of what I call justicial anachronism, by which I mean the changing content of the term justice accompanied by a demand for the retroactive application of the newer conception. In the kaleidoscope of the international process, self-selected leaders of groups that were hitherto unorganized or ineffective try to raise in others the consciousness of their shared identity and of the deprivations which they believe they have suffered as members of that group. As soon as they can organize and mobilize a constituency, they agitate for adjustments in legal arrangements to ameliorate their situation. Thus, they may seek compensation for deprivations that may have been lawful in the past, but would be unlawful by reference to the newly demanded or newly installed arrangements. The new arrangements they seek are not only pro futuro, they often demand retroactive adjustment. This is a worldwide phenomenon. Whether we speak of comfort women of the Second World War, Germans expelled from Upper Silesia or Sudetenland, African Americans seeking compensation for the deprivations of slavery, indigenous peoples demanding restitution of land that was legally alienated, that in terms of legal of the system of the then dominant group, decolonization, or Palestinians seeking to return to lands from which they were expelled or fled more than a half century ago, we are encountering the same phenomenon. The insistence on the basis of the application of contemporary or evolving notions of justice, that past practices which accomplished them, which violated them, but were accomplished under arrangements then lawful, be recharacterized, nunc pro tunc, as unlawful and requited by a significant remedy. Justicial anachronism has become a recurring feature of contemporary law, both because of the dialectical dynamic we considered earlier and because of sociological changes in the agitational professions. Of particular importance is the catalytic role of specialist groups of lawyers, moral entrepreneurs, and other agents of change who see opportunities for moral satisfaction, profit, and personal power in the installation of new notions of collective social responsibility. The phenomenon of justicial anachronism is not limited to international law. Yet, even when apparently internal to a particular territory, 
it's likely to invoke whatever international legal symbols promise to be useful as one of the bases of its demands. When justicial anachronism transcends the boundaries of an efficiently organized state, it becomes particularly complex and conflictive because the remedies may then entail adjustments in other states, yet the international legal arrangements for the orderly and fair termination of existing arrangements remain undeveloped. Some of the reasons for the volatility of international law are shared with other intellectual disciplines. Although the discipline of history may seem to be concerned only with the verification and assembly of objective facts from the past, history as a narrative or meditation on the past is actually a palimpsest. Narratives of past events are constantly being rewritten and reinterpreted upon that palimpsest as a function of the perspectives and values of the culture, class, gender, and crisis experience of each successive historian. Major events or leaders who might have been viewed affirmatively or neutrally or even ignored by one generation may be appraised negatively by a subsequent generation whose evaluation will be shaped by its own perspectives. In some cases, successive reinterpretations are quite rapid. Comparable revisions occur in international law. In its heyday, and not that long ago, imperialism and colonialism and their ostensible mission civilisatrice were glorified on the basis of their fundamental legal arrangements, long-term private rights and duties were established. In current international law, imperialism and colonialism are viewed as irredeemably evil, and many not all of the institutional arrangements and in particular private rights which were established and transmitted through time on the basis of law in that era are subjected to the demand of termination or adaptation to new values. Instability in judgments about international events also caused by incomplete knowledge of events. Assessments of lawfulness in international law, as in all law, are in the first instance fact determined in some critical cases, facts which could have a major impact on the assessment of lawfulness will become known only many years later. While the policies underlying the principles of race judicata may insulate judicial decisions from revision in the light of new information, no comparable policy insulates general assessments of the lawfulness of other legal arrangements after authoritative decision about them. Our civilization of science and technology introduces a still further factor that causes volatility in the law. For better or worse, participants in a civilization of science and technology are locked in a relentless process of research and a frenzied and competitive drive to apply the results wherever they promise enhanced productivity and profit. Each innovation stimulates further innovations which stimulates still further innovations. As for the installation of legal arrangements that would regulate it all, thanks to legislation's characteristic deliberative and measured methods, it often lags behind the innovations. As a result, there are intervals of legal gap in which the relevance or applicability of putative lawful arrangements become uncertain. Until now, we've considered reasons for the volatility of the content of international law. 
These reasons arise mostly from conflicts between groups with different perspectives and demands and distinctive symbols of authority. There is yet another factor that contributes to the uncertainty and volatility of international law and which makes the role of the international lawyer challenging and in some circumstances perilous. This factor has to do with the phenomenon of the multiplicity of images or versions of law of varying authority and control and the cathexis as if it were a type of secular religion to some manifestly inoperative versions. Drawing upon the work, the seminal work of Eugen Ehrlich, Roscoe Pound usefully distinguished between what he called the law in the books and the law in action. The law in the books, according to Pound, presents a very complete picture of apparently authorized arrangements, including how disputes about them should be processed. But that lovely picture does not always correspond point for point with the actual flow of decisions taken by the various authoritative institutions. Pound called the latter flow the law in action. Now, some jurists might assume that whatever is not consistent with the law in the books is indeed, must be indeed, unlawful. Pound's genius was to appreciate that what was actually done might well be lawful even if it were inconsistent with the law in the books. That's not to say that Pound was content with the inconsistency of the law in action departing from the law in the books. At heart, he too believed that law in the books should be the exclusive law. The discrepancy between the law in the books and the law in action was a remediable pathology in his view if only lawmakers would be disciplined and realistic in enacting legislation. Now, discipline and realism are certainly desirable traits for the legislatures, but the reason for the discrepancy between the law in the books and the law in action is not always attributable to legislative incontinence or fecklessness. In every legal system, some legislation is enacted simply to affirm a value or placate a constituency without any intention or expectation of making it effective. The exercise is apparently legislative, but the product is simulated law, or what one might call lex simulata. The process is a simulation of law making in which the key actors appreciate that they neither intend nor are installing an operative prescription. In some circumstances, political mediation between contending groups produces legislation which vindicates one group's claims, but is designed to be unenforceable because it's inconsistent with other legislation demanded by other equally powerful or more powerful groups. In different circumstances, a law is enacted without a specified or sufficient sanction or is rendered unenforceable by under-budgeting or understaffing. The exercise is here is legislative, or one might better say legislatistic, but the product of the exercise is and was intended to be genetically ineffective, the so-called lex imperfecta. Now, jurists who have not grasped the function of lex simulata and lex imperfecta assume, like Dean Pound and his notion of law and the action, 
that an imperative juridical task is to correct the failure of a pre presumed feckless legislator by making simulated and imperfect law effective. But they miss the point. Paradoxically, the intention and function of this type of inoperative legislation is to be inoperable. Be that as it may, the net result of lex imperfecta and simulata is persisting discrepancies between certain parts of the formal legal system and the way decisions are actually taken. Those persistent discrepancies do not mean that there is no law in the sectors in which practice deviates from formal law. Some of the discrepancies may indeed be violations, but some may conform to a different code based on another set of expectations and demands. These latter are distinctive in that they are effectively, though usually informally, sanctioned. Thus, actors who must actually make and contend with decisions encounter two relevant normative systems. One that is supposed to apply, continues to employ to enjoy public deference among elites, and is presented to the relevant community at large as the law, and another that is actually applied. To complicate matters further, different arenas or application agencies may apply one or the other of the codes in question. There are jurisdictions which apply the myth system and jurisdictions which apply the operational code. In other work, I've called the norms of the official group the myth system, and parts of it may be operational and parts may provide the appropriate code of conduct for many group members. For all of those members of a community who are not actually or actively engaged in the decision process, most of the myth system is their normative guide. But there are enough discrepancies between this system and the way things are actually done by key official or effective actors to warrant reserving another name. And for this, I use the word operational code to imply the unofficial but nonetheless effective code of behavior in those discrepant sectors. Myth systems are different from legal fictions. Legal fictions are authoritative statements whose patent falseness is by convention scrupulously ignored. They occur in legal systems in which veneration for existing prescriptions is great, or formal amendment procedures are cumbersome and expensive, or easily blocked by a small minority. The device of the fiction enables those charged with making decisions to abrogate existing law without formally changing it, a function usually beyond their formal competence. Virtually all who resort to a particular legal fiction know it for what it is, a device for circumventing a norm that is obsolete, but the costs of whose formal abrogation would exceed the benefit. By contrast, the myth system is not widely appreciated as consciously false. It does not express values that are obsolete. To the contrary, it affirms values that continue to be important socially and personally, though not applied to the jurisdiction in the jurisdiction of the operational code, the myth system may yet influence decision making. Precisely because discrepancies between myth system and operational code can erode the credibility of the myth system, maintenance of belief in the myth system is a dynamic process requiring ongoing contributions from many. 
By contrast, those who practice the operational code try to obscure it from the general public. But there is nonetheless an almost symbiotic relationship between myth system and operational code, the latter providing a degree of suppleness and practicality that the myth system could not achieve without changing much of its content and procedure of application. Members of the community who are not privy to its operational code may at one level view operational code activities as unlawful, yet there may also be a certain uneasy toleration or even a desire for ignorance. A fascinating recent example of this double thinking may be found in the reaction to NATO's bombardment of Serbia over its human rights violations in Kosovo. The bombardment was clearly against international law's myth system, yet most people felt that it was the right thing to do. A number of sociologists have studied dirty work in society, as they call it, things which a community requires to be done in order for it to function efficiently, but which cannot be done in accordance with the community's law. And they've noted that the way that ignorance is cultivated about it. The concept of operational code does not mean that nothing is ever lawful. Much will remain unlawful and even be effectively condemned. Operators know that some discrepancies from the myth system are licit, that they're parts of the operational code and they'll be tolerated. Others will not, or will not in certain circumstances. In other words, Determining the socially proper course of behavior in a particular setting necessitates a much wider inquiry than the simple consultation of a single black letter text or the authoritative processes of formal law. But there's also an uncertainty in relying on the operational code, for it is never certain that the best judgment, which is exercised at a critical moment, and even acknowledges the right thing to do then, will not later be reconsidered in terms of the myth system and penalized in its name. When there are myth system purges of operational code practices, the operators or practitioners of the code will often stand together and try to thwart the effort. Even if sanctions are imposed and new prescriptions are made to prevent the practices, indeed even if the old operators are purged and replaced by new operators, it is likely that many of these practices will continue if those who control them conclude they are necessary for the operation of the collective enterprise or exploiting that justification con convenient for the new operators. We need only reflect on the sad incident of the Oil for Food program, a program rife with self-dealing by scores of governments who were involved in it. Multiple investigations and reports have produced a handful of prosecutions, but no change in the essential arrangements that made such a scandal possible. One reason operational codes persist is because those who apply and benefit from them have a continuing interest in sustaining them and keeping them confidential. Although they provide a certain flexibility or suppleness to that component of the myth system, which is unworkable in critical situations, many parts of an operational code, if not the code itself, are not necessarily good for the community at large. Every norm of the operational code need not contribute to group weal. Indeed, 
in terms of the goals expressed in the myth system, much of the operational code may be profoundly dysfunctional, serving only to protect the entrenched position of elites or particular groups. For example, allowing rewards to be granted on the basis of old boy connections or class, caste, tribal or ethnic ties, rather than on the basis of merit prescribed by the myth system. The distinction between myth system and operational code is important for the lawyer and in particular for the international lawyer for a number of reasons. The advice and guidance the lawyer gives is vital to those making decisions and those affected by them because expectations of authority are a critical variable in effectiveness. But those who are risking life or treasure appreciate the difference between what is likely to happen and what should happen and are entitled to be informed of the spread between them. It is important to have a framework of inquiry that permits the identification of the full range of those expectations which are actually operative. Many legal formulations in international law establish prescriptions that express aspiration but those who understand the decision processes know that they are not likely to be implemented. Those who seek advice and then will risk their treasure and possibly their lives in reliance on certain apparent legal arrangements should be advised as to whether those arrangements are truly effective or are aspirational statements, whether they're law in the books without the resource commitments to make them effective. But as I noted, even when operators are privy to the operational code, there are always perils in following or not following it. It will always be possible for reformers, some political opponents, or counter-elites to belatedly prosecute actions that were consonant with the operational code as defections from the myth system, either in response to popular outcry about deviations or in order to provoke such an outcry and then to demonstrate their own courage and skill in protecting the integrity of the myth system. The defense of compliance with the operational code will not prevail against these deferred prosecutions. None of this is to say that the myth system is irrelevant and that only the operational code counts. As I said, many of the values of a community are expressed in the myth system. And one of the goals of an enlightened jurisprudence may be to secure greater and greater realization of that system. But before that goal is ever achieved, responsible lawyers must advise those who repose trust in them as to the law and the operational code. The cultivation and elaboration of the myth system is particularly fascinating in international law. Consider the United Nations Security Council, a body formally endowed with apparently unlimited competence and with a theoretical capacity to compel members and non-members states to comply with its decisions, even if their compliance in a particular case might require their violating existing treaty obligations. Merely open the UN Charter, and you must conclude that international law is an effective system. But every international lawyer reading those pages knows that the Council, as a practical matter, can rarely act in precisely those critical events for which it was created. On the celebrated occasions when it proves itself capable of securing internal agreement and of acting, 
its decisions are often so anodyne as to amount to exercises in lex simulata. Even permanent members pressing for a meaningful decision may ultimately accept a compromise that is anodyne, thereby elevating the illusion that the council is making a meaningful decision over the reality that it is not, and maintaining the myth that this part of international law is effective. And yet, there may be times when the council can and does make a meaningful decision, or at least may act in such a way as to render itself a significant factor in effecting an arrangement. The very transposition of key concepts of organized domestic legal systems to international law embroiders the latter's myth system. Many of the domestic concepts presuppose an omnipresent hierarchical enforcement mechanism. Indeed, positivism as a jurisprudential school insists that such a structure is the essential indicator of law. Consider the concept of duty in a developed legal system. It rests on the presumption that there are effective institutions to compel performance of that duty. Thus, a duty in a domestic legal system not to cause harm to the environment may be made meaningful. The willy-nilly transposition of such terms to international law, whose context and institutional articulation are radically different, creates an idealized image of a legal system that may bear little correspondence to the processes of decision which actually obtain. This is not to say that international law is not law, that it cannot be forced, enforced, or that it is a negligible factor in international politics. But those who would be effective in understanding and shaping international law must distinguish between its myth system and its operational code. The myth system and operational code of international law, along with the factors causing its volatility, present formidable intellectual challenges to the international lawyer. These challenges are made even more formidable by the relevance of power, a factor to which I will now turn. Power is authoritative when it's applied in accordance with expectations of authority and for the achievement of authoritative objectives. When power is not used in this fashion, it is naked power. Authoritative power is an indispensable component of any legal arrangement. Naked power, in contrast to authoritative power, is used without regard to or against legal arrangements. Power in the service of legal arrangements must be planned and built into those arrangements. Purported legal arrangements without power remain semantic exercises, whether they were only intended to be struts of the myth system with no expectation that power could sustain them, or they originated in real efforts to install an arrangement which then failed of its purpose because it could not mobilize sufficient power. The need for sufficient power to make arrangements effective also affects the content of the arrangements. Mobilizing power may require adjustments in their content in order to win sufficient support. The point of emphasis is that it's a mistake to assume that law and power are elements which are inherently and always opposed and incompatible. Now, for many students of international law, power is not simply a professionally irrelevant word. It's an obscene word, the P word. The scholar who dares to mention it 
is immediately viewed as cynically denying meaningful law or as serving the age as the agent of a powerful state, usually seeking to justify that state's disregard of the legal arrangements demanded by others. For many of their professional roles, international lawyers require ways of mapping and then mobilizing or neutralizing the power process. Consider again lawmaking or prescription. Normative arrangements require power to support and implement them. In a legally developed and effective political system, formal institutions may usually, but not always, be relied upon for implementation. In international law, that's not the case. So the would-be international lawmaker must either adjust the normative content of a prescription to win support, or assemble coalitions to support the preferred normative content. Similarly, in application, one of the requisites of effective decisions is that they be crafted to win the support necessary to make them meaningful. Thus, the international lawyer in many roles must understand the variable of power and be adept in using it. That said, there are no simple and easy metrics for assessing power because it's always relational and contextual. The statement that A is powerful is meaningless. A is not a weightlifter admiring his physique in a mirror. The statement A is powerful can be made meaningful only in the sense that A is powerful in relation to some B in a particular context and with respect to particular matters. If B associates with C and D in that same context, A might cease to be powerful with respect to those matters. If B should acquire or devise ways of counteracting A's power, A ceases to be powerful. The power relationship is reversed and B is powerful in relation to A for those contexts and matters. If A is a composite actor, like a state, some of whose components are ill-disposed to permit the exercise, to the exercise of the influence of A vis-a-vis -vis B, preferring it to be applied, for example, against C or D, or preferring it to be reserved or directed to the achievement of internal goals, A is not powerful with respect to B. The point is that power is not a fixed factor, but a variable one, always subject to possible adjustment and manipulation by other actors, if the actor's frame of reference includes ways of identifying and influencing power constellations. The statement that A, the weightlifter, is powerful is meaning only insofar as others allow it to be self-fulfilling. That is, that others unequipped with a way of thinking about and influencing power, for power relationships or unable to shape the power variable and fearing A's bulging biceps yield to him. For such actors, the jungle may be full of terrifying paper tigers. In international politics, power preponderance is not usefully measured by the number of missiles, bombs, tanks, or men and women under arms nor can power be assessed by a measure such as gross domestic product, the number of people in a population, the number of universities, and so on. 
Consider the trophy indicators of power, such as nuclear weapons or the enormous ballistic missiles of the Soviet era, those great phallic symbols which were traditionally hauled through Red Square each May Day. Such prestige weapons are frequently neutralized by comparable arsenals or their use would be self-destruction, self self-destructive. They may also be rendered obsolete by the refinement of new asymmetrical weapons, which adversaries are constantly trying to invent. Even in situations in which such weapons are not available to an actual or latent adversary, a, a distinction must be drawn between what sociologists call fate control and behavior control. Many of the weapons commonly assumed to indicate ultimate power enable an actor to annihilate its adversary, but do not necessarily enable it to control the adversary's behavior. Insofar as annihilation has ceased to be a legitimate, beneficial, or practical objective, the critical issue has become behavior control. In the myriad networks of which modern international politics is composed, there are many shifting power relationships. The bases of a power relationship may be any of the values which serve as the resources of different communities. Which of those resources will prove effective and serve as means of influence in a particular situation will depend on many factors. The context, the interrelated dependencies of the participants, and the relative abilities of each of the participants to understand and to mobilize internal resources for that particular relationship. Since, as I noted earlier, the techniques of our science-based and technological civilization are constantly changing or being adapted to new purposes, what will constitute a useful instrument or value for the exercise of power in a particular setting will be changing constantly, as indicated earlier. The fluidity of power and the ineluctable relationship between legal arrangements and power in international politics contributes to and exacerbates the volatility and uncertainty of the international legal system. It is in itself a source of conflict because at any moment there may be contending symbol systems through whose respective prisms those who are subject to them view the same events as either exercises in naked power or exercises of power in defense of public order. So law in any system is unstable. International law is particularly volatile. Its content and mode of application to new events are always more uncertain than in domestic law and especially the domestic law of organized states. Moreover, assessments of lawfulness made within it are frequently adjusted retroactively. This volatility presents opportunities to would-be reformers for constructively reshaping international law in better ways. However, it poses special challenges to the lawyer who would responsibly advise any of the participants in the international process as to which arrangements in international law are operative at particular moments and for particular events, and to enable them to assess the lawfulness of prospective actions.